0: I invite you to open your Bible this morning to Esther chapter 1. Esther chapter 1, we're going to be reading most of the first two chapters in the book of Esther as we start a series this morning entitled, The Presence of God in His Absence. We're going to take the next four weeks to go through the book of Esther and ask ourselves a question, where is God in the midst of all that we see around us? Esther's a very interesting book, and we're going to share a little bit about that in just a moment. Uh, but this morning's message is entitled specifically, Where is God? Where is God? Perhaps you've asked that very question at different points in your life. You've seen our culture and you've asked, Where is God in our culture? You've experienced tragedy or witnessed tragedy. And you've asked, where is God in this tragic moment? We're blessed in our country, but we understand that around the world, Christians are persecuted for their faith. And indeed, even in our own country, there are those who experience severe persecution. And you see the persecution and you ask, where are you, God? Maybe you see the immorality that takes place around us. And you wonder why God doesn't put a stop to it. As we're recording this now and watching this live, we're in the midst of a worldwide pandemic where the number of people who have died is in the thousands. And we ask ourselves, God, where are you? Where is God in moments like this? Maybe in your own personal life, you've experienced one of these instances where you've stepped back and you've just asked, God, where are you? Why are you absent in my life right now? In 1847, Frederick Douglass, the the freed slave who was on the trail speaking out against slavery, was speaking at an event in Massachusetts. As he was speaking, he shared of his own suffering as a slave. He shared about the suffering of his fellow African-Americans under the, this cruel slavery system. He talked about the slow progress with which the reforms were taking place. And how it wasn't moving fast enough. It was a, a deeply disturbed and depressed speech. Douglas was, was discouraged and he sat down at the conclusion of his speech, weary and tired and beaten. A woman named Sojourner Truth at the the closing of his his speech, Sojourner Truth being a, a fellow freed slave and an evangelist, shouted out at the end of his speech, Frederick, is God dead? Of course, this was a rhetorical question. Sojourner Truth was a wonderful woman of God and she knew that God was moving. So she's asking the question, not whether or not God is actually dead, but she's asking with all this discouragement, with all that is going on around us, do you think God is absent and unaware? Is he unable or is God still in control? The answer certainly to sojourner truth. And the answer to you and I today is indeed God is alive. He is working and he is moving even when we cannot see him. That's what this entire series can be summed up in. That God is present even in his apparent absence. God is moving when we don't see him moving. God is there when we feel alone. We're going to read through the entire book of Esther over the next four weeks. There's going to be a lot of scripture reading, so I hope that you'll have a copy of God's word in front of you. We'll certainly share scriptures on the screen, but but I would encourage you to read through the book of Esther. It is perhaps the most Hollywood of all of the books in the Bible. As we read through the book of Esther, you're going to find things like betrayal. You're going to see alcohol. You're going to see promiscuity. You're going to see very R-rated content. You're going to see twists and turns and deception You're going to see gore in blood. If they made a movie out of Esther, there is no way it would be suitable for young audiences. You're also going to see drama unfolding, coincidences that that are mind-blowing. You're going to see heroes step up. You're going to see faithfulness. You're going to see men doing everything in their power to thwart God's plan. And an amazing woman who steps out on faith and intervenes, You're going to see all of the makings of a great movie and a great play. And so as we read Esther together, I hope that you'll be on the edge of your seat waiting to see what is going to unfold. But but Esther is a very interesting book. It takes place during the exile of the nation of Israel. So what had happened uh, several years earlier, much, much earlier, is the nation of Israel was conquered by Babylon and taken out of the nation and and taken into Babylon. Over time, Babylon gets overthrown by the Persians, who is uh, is in control right now. And the Persians uh, let some of the Israelites go back home, but not all of them. This story is about uh, a Jewish family, a Jewish community in Susa, in Persia, who had not been able to return home. And it's the the way that God uses them to enact his will in the lives of an entire nation. What's really interesting about the book of Esther is that there is no mention of God, Yahweh, or Lord anywhere in the book. The only book of the Bible, all 66 books of the Bible, there's only one, the book of Esther, that never mentions God. God. There's no mention of Scripture. There's no mention of prayer. There's no mention of any spiritual discipline except for one time when fasting is very briefly mentioned. Elsewhere in the Bible, there are quotes all over from different books of the Old Testament, but Esther is never quoted by any other book of the Bible. Esther herself is not mentioned by anyone else. Never Anywhere do we see any mention of anything religious having to do with God in the entire book. And so we wonder, why is this book even in the Bible? I mean, isn't the Bible supposed to be about God? And here we see Esther, the book of Esther, not even a breath of who God is. Well, I think the reason why Esther is in our scriptures is because... The writer of Esther brilliantly calls on its readers to see God's activity behind the scenes. When you don't see God obviously in front of you, is he still moving? In the book of Esther, there's an emphatic, yes, he is. We're going to take some time, and it's going to take just a little bit of time to read Esther chapter 1 all the way through chapter 2, verse 18, and I want you to read this with me. We're going to read it as it unfolds in the coming weeks, and I want you to listen to the pieces of the story. Sit and soak in what is going on and what is happening as we try to answer the question this morning, Where is God? Read with me in Esther chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles of the governors of the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, a hundred and eighty days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on mosaic pavement of a porphyry marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished in according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of the palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded mehuman, biztha, harbona, bigtha, Abagtha, Zether, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men, who knew the times, for, for this was the king's procedure to all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Maris, Marsina, and Mimucan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Then Mamukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the people who are in the province of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media will have heard of the queen's behavior and will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Hazarus. Let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike." This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mamukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Chapter 2. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done. And what she had been decreed against her. And the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful virgins be sought out for the king. and Let the king appoint officers in the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in susa, the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them. And let the young women, uh, the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. Well, this pleased the king, and, and he did so. Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shammai, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, For she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who was in charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. And when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of beautification, uh, of beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women. When the young women went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, in the morning she would return to the second harem, in custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go in to the king again unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go in to the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the the month of Tebeth in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants, it was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes for the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. These first two chapters have a, a lot going on and a lot to unpack already. King Ahasuerus was wealthy, was ruling and succeeding, and he held a banquet for 180 days, a lavish Festival, And at the end of this lavish festival, for seven days, he holds a, a large party in Susa. He calls for his wife, Queen Vashti, to come and entertain everyone with her, her beauty. You can see the sexist pig that King Ahasuerus is. But Queen Vashti refuses. In his rage, he kicks her out and determines that that no one can come before him unless he calls her. Under the advice of of his royal advisors, his council, he issues a decree, not because of what Vashti did, but because his advisors, and this is is funny, I hope you didn't miss this, his advisors are worried that their wives will hear that Queen Vashti defied the king and that their wives will start to defy them. Very self-serving. So they issue a decree that every man in all of Persia is master of his own house. This decree goes out to the, the vastness of, of the empire. Well, after some time, the king gets lonely. He remembers Queen Vashti, but he remembers he can't call her back. And based on the bad advice of his council, again, he decides to bring in all of the young, beautiful women to join his harem. Now, this is not something that, that you and I would consider a privilege. I, I do imagine that as he, he's calling out for all the beautiful young women, it, it would be a little flattering if they said, you're beautiful enough to come in, and it would be a little heartbreaking if they said, I'm sorry, you're just not pretty enough for the king. But I can't imagine that it was an honor to be chosen to be a part of a harem. This is not something to be celebrated. Instead, this is is something that is heartbreaking. Often, Esther is portrayed as as one of the first beauty pageants, and certainly that's what it appears to be. But it's not a beauty pageant like you and I would watch a beauty pageant on television. There is no interview section. There is no no award given to the the contestant who can declare world peace the fastest. There is no evening gown edition. There there is no talent show to see who sings or plays an instrument simply based on whether the king delights to sleep with you or not. Esther is pulled in. Esther, the the Jew, the, the cousin of Mordecai who is raising her as his daughter. Esther is called in and summoned, quickly becomes a favorite of the king's eunuch And after a year of being beautified, as was the custom in Persia, she is called in to see the king and becomes a favorite of the king. She becomes the the queen of Persia and is married to uh, to King Ahasuerus. But following her uncle's advice, Esther keeps her Jewish identity a secret. As we study these first two chapters... There's parts of it that we read and we say are great successes. Esther's ascent to be queen. And there are parts of this that we read and we understand are, are, are something to be proud of. Esther's beauty is rewarded. Her, her faithfulness to her, her cousin, her her adopted father, her, her faithfulness to keep her identity a secret should be applauded. This really is, is a tragic scene of a a young girl taken from her family, forced into what cannot be described in any other way except to be a sex slave for the king. And while she may be made queen, she is one of many concubines within the harem. We read this and we wonder, God, why would you allow this to happen? The tragedy of Esther losing her parents, then of her getting stripped away from the only family she knows and being forced to focus only on her outward beauty so that it pleases the king. We wonder. We wonder why God would allow one of His chosen people of the nation of Israel, a Jew, to have to go through all that Esther is going through. As we're writing down notes this morning, I want you to write down three different things, and you can follow along in your bulletin, maybe write it down on a notepad. The first observation we make when we read these first two chapters is that the silence of God is painfully obvious. Instead of worshiping God, we see the people worshiping King Hazarus. You can read about his lavish banquets that he's thrown in in verses 4 and in verses 6, There's this repeated emphasis on the the greatness of his kingdom. In verse 1, we read about all of the provinces he has. In verse 20, it talks about the vastness of his empire. In, In verse 22 of chapter 1, we read that this edict goes out to all the many people with all the different languages, emphasizing just how great and vast and varied his empire was. The people are literally bowing down, not to God in worship, but to a king because he gives them wine in golden goblets. No, God is not worshipped. The king is worshipped. Instead of God's righteousness, we see immorality. We see people serving themselves. There is no sense of right and wrong, There's drinking and womanizing and gluttony and arrogance and fits of rage that continue throughout the book. Later, we're going to read about the immorality, not just of the king and his court, but even of the heroes of our story and how they struggle to do what is right. Instead of God's word, there's an emphasis on Persian law. Look at the king's response to Vashti in verses 14 and 15. As he's being rejected, the king says, as he calls the men in, um, he, he asks them to do, in verse 15, according to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti. What are we supposed to do as he he calls in all of these people who are versed in the law, who understand judgment in Persia? There's an emphasis on what does my law say? In verse 19, we read about the, the binding nature of Persian law. That when a king makes an edict and seals it with his signet ring, it cannot be reversed even by the king himself. Instead of it being the The unerring word of God it is the unwavering word of the king of Persia where is God in the midst of this it's painfully obvious that he is absent we don't see him and everything that should be attributed to God, worship righteousness, his word are all attributed to the king where is God Are we surprised by his absence in this chapter, in these two chapters? Are we shocked that there is no mention of him anywhere? Why? I I think the, the important thing to understand is that we should expect such things from a wicked, secular culture. Lost people act lost. In the absence of God, there will be worship of something else. In the absence of his righteousness, there will be immorality that spreads. In the absence of the word of God, people will turn to something else that they view as binding, typically, something self serving. Just because a lost culture acts like a lost culture does not mean that God is not active. I think that's the second observation we can make, and you can write this down. The absence of God's voice does not equate to the absence of God's action. Let me say that again. The absence of God's voice does not equate to the absence of God's action. As we read all 10 chapters of Esther We will be amazed at the number of coincidences that take place in this book. But just in these first two chapters alone, maybe you missed God's hand moving and working and putting pieces in place. For instance, notice that as many of the Jews returned home, Mordecai and Esther did not now, whether it was their choice or whether they were unallowed to go home, we don't know. But God assures that they are in Susa at the time that he desires. Notice that at this same time, it happens to be when Ahasuerus is looking for a new queen. Of all the times in history that he's looking to get married, he, he already has a wife, God is working behind the scenes to clear that out of the way and make a path for Esther to become queen of Persia. Notice that Esther is favored over all the other women. Do you think that God is absent in promoting Esther to the king? There are hundreds, maybe thousands within the harem. There are enough that when Esther is, is seen and elevated, she is given seven other women who now have no chance with the king simply to serve Esther. No, God is moving and putting pieces in place. Even in the midst of all the chaos that's going on, God is doing something. My grandmother used to tell a, a joke about a, a man who could not read or write. He worked really hard to find a job and had applied everywhere he could apply to. And no one would hire him because of his illiteracy. So finally he went to apply to just pick up garbage. As he applied to be a garbage man, they were ready to hire him. The need was there and they asked him to sign his contract to which he told them, I- I'm sorry, I don't know how to read or write. Like every other job, they passed him up and sent him away. And and so the man, not knowing what to do, went to a grocery store and pulled out a nickel and bought an apple. He took that apple outside and and started asking people if they wanted to buy an apple for a dime. And he found someone to buy an apple for a dime, and he had doubled his nickel. He went back to the grocery store and bought two more apples, to which he also sold for dimes, and repeated that process until he had a, a fairly successful fruit stand. As his fruit stand gained in popularity and, and began to, to grow financially, he was able to, to purchase a building to open up his own grocery store. And because of his, his business success, it ended up being one of the most successful grocery stores in the entire country. Well, one day, when a delivery man came to deliver a package, he came to the owner of this large tra- uh, chain of grocery stores, gave him his box and asked him to sign for his package, to which the man replied, I'm sorry, I I don't know how to read or write. The delivery man was blown away. He couldn't believe it. He said, can you imagine with all of your success, opening up all these chains of grocery stores, you are a multi-millionaire. Can you imagine how much more successful you would be if you could read or write? He said, just think about it. Where would you be today if you knew how to read and write? Without giving it much thought, the owner of that large chain of grocery stores says, I know exactly where I'd be. I'd be a garbage man picking up garbage. Yet Sometimes our circumstances make us go, God, what's going on? Why can't I do the things you're asking me to do? Why can't I fulfill the, the dreams that I have in my life? God, where are you? But God is putting things in place. He's closing doors. He's opening doors. the The silence of God does not mean He is not moving and He is not working. You no, know, our our last observation this morning says God is working His plan in the midst of immorality, persecution, and tragedy. We see in this story how God works His plan in the midst of immorality. We read about all of the alcohol that is consumed. of the time in the book of Esther, the king is drunk or his heart is merry with wine. He's giving it out lavishly and and there isn't a coherent thought that typically comes from his mouth. And there's promiscuity that is defining many of the main characters throughout this this book. Throughout the rest of the book, we we read about rage and vengeance and murder. We, We understand there's bloodshed and hatred, There will come a point in time where where we have to stop and ask ourselves, is is there anyone in this book who does what is morally right? And yet, in the midst of immorality and flawed characters, God is moving. God is working His plan in the midst of persecution. Think about the persecution of Queen Vashti. Think about how she is banished from the kingdom. and, And while it doesn't explicitly say, I have a hard time believing that the queen of Persia could be divorced and kicked out of the house without being executed. Think of the persecution of all of the women in the Persian Empire as this edict goes out that says that the man should be master of his house. This didn't mean head of house, what biblically would mean head of house. No, this meant wives, you are slaves to your husband. Think of the persecution across an entire empire of women who are suffering under the rule of godless men. Uh, Later on in the book, we're going to read about the persecution of the Jewish people. Anti-Semitism is is nothing new. It's not uh, invented in the 20th century with World War II. It goes back thousands of years. And here we will read about a plot even next week, a plot to completely wipe out the Jewish people from the face of the earth. There is great persecution and yet God is working His plan. God is working his plan in the midst of tragedy. Think about how tragic Esther's life is up to this point. Both her parents have died. She's left as an orphan and and her uncle's son, so her cousin Mordecai accepts her in and raises her as his own daughter. We read nothing about the rest of Mordecai's family. We don't know if he had a wife and other children or if it was just the two of them. But we know Esther had no one else. And she's ripped away from the only family she knows, separated from her her cousin, her adopted father. She's stripped away and thrown into a harem to be a piece of meat for a king. And yet God is moving in the midst of tragedy. There is nothing out of God's control all throughout Scripture. We think of Abraham. Abraham was old and childless. God was in control. David was a man full of immorality, committing adultery and murder, and yet God used him. God was in control. In the New Testament, Paul is arrested and beaten and thrown into prison, suffering severe persecution, and yet God was in control. God is still moving in the midst of of all the chaos around us. Can you see God today? Do you recognize God in your life? Our culture has kicked him out. Our world is in the midst of suffering loss. We as individuals have times of crying out, God, where are you? Rest assured that God is working as we wrap up this morning let let me talk to you a little bit about the literature of Esther there are two main types of literature all through history there are tragedies and there are comedies Oh, certainly there are smaller types, but, but the two main are the, the tragic stories where in the end, the hero loses everything. Think Romeo and Juliet or many of Shakespeare's great works. The other type of literature is a comedy. Not that it's funny, although there are some com- uh, comedic elements in the book of Esther. No, it's a comedy in that, that at the end, the heroes succeed. Esther... Esther is a comedy. Spoiling the end, Esther ends up on the positive side of the equation. Her and her family overcome and win. God moves in such a way to save Mordecai and Esther both. The truth is, things don't always go well here on earth. Often our lives seem like a tragedy as things spiral out of control. But we know the ending. We know that God is working towards our ultimate pleasure in Him. And in Christ, even in His absence or His silence, He is moving. And your life in Christ is not a tragedy, it's a comedy. I wonder if you would put your faith and trust in Christ today, knowing that God is working even when you don't see and hear Him. Pray with me. Father, we often find ourselves asking, where are you? Today, many of us in the midst of a pandemic or maybe personal grief and loss in our own lives, ask that very question. Remind us, Lord, that your silence does not mean your absence. That you are present and working behind the scenes, even when we don't see you. Father, let us put our our faith and trust in a God who never abandons us, who always is there for us and is working things so that we will find our pleasure in you. Father, as we ask the question, where is God? Give us a resounding, a resounding answer through your word to remind us that not only are you present, but you're moving and you're working your perfect plan. Father, let us submit to you this morning knowing that that our life, though seemingly tragic, is a comedy, is a success, is a happy ending in eternity with you. Lord, let us put our faith and trust in you as Savior and Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.